Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. The show is called uh, Current Yield, I believe, still. Okay. Well, so check. And uh, I am Jim Grant, and with me today, as always, Eric Whitehead, who is sitting to my left. He's at the uh, control panel. And uh, Evan Lorenz, the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, is here as well. And our guests with us today are Messrs. Gehring and Rosenzweig. That is uh, Lee Gehring and Adam Rosenzweig. And together, they are the founders and the eponyms of Gehring and Rosenzweig Natural Resource Investors. Yeah. Um, hey, what's the name? You have a mutual fund, no? Uh, we do. A Gehring and Rosenzweig Resources Fund. What's the ticker? A G-R-H-I-X for the uh, institutional. Good yeah. Uh, so that's institutional only, is it? Yeah, we do have a retail class as well, and it's G-R-H-A-X. So ladies and gentlemen, you mark those well, because by the time this is over, you'll want to know it. Um, this is prediction. Uh, before, we, before we went on what we are pleased to call the air... Adam and Lee, Evan handed me a piece of paper. And on this piece of paper, there is written the following, quote, Apple is now worth more than the entire U.S. energy sector, close quote. That is according to Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So it's got to be correct. Does it surprise you? No, I I, I don't think so. It, it, in fact, one of the interesting things about... This is, by the way, this is Lee talking. It's interesting about resources markets and in particular uh, energy and oil-related investments is how wildly bearish people have become. And whether the bearishness comes through true underlying fundamentals, which we could talk a lot about today, I would say that it's not, or just that that investment psychology has come from the downward price and the downward momentum these stocks have had. It, it, it's wound up producing radically depressed valuations in the energy sector. Just if you just out of curiosity, just look at the number of E&P stocks that all have Two and three dollar handles on their on their, their well, stock. Well, could it could it be as simply and Adam uh, as simple as uh, that we are no longer uh, doing something as retrograde as drilling for oil when we have electricity. If you look, look, we got a socket around here. There it is. Electricity is right there in the wall, and it powers your car, your electric shaver, and all sorts of things. So, so why do we need oil? Well, I, I would say that I mean we all know the reasons why we need oil, and you know it, it's the most if if there's one if there's one commodity if there's one invention if you want to call it which would be a refined product that has driven the growth of the 20th century it has been oil and one of the most funny things is that we, we've completely lost the appreciation of this. Like, why are we able to drive around wherever we want, have complete flexibility of transportation? Well, it, it doesn't have to do with iPhones. Um, it doesn't have to do with the, the, the Mac PC or anything like that. It has to do with product that comes out of the ground and is refined into a, a very valuable product. And we've seemed to have lost that that connection there. So, all right. So, Adam, Adam Rosenzweig, I, I, I have been reading the um, uh, the third uh, what's it third quarter letter that you guys have produced, and it is merely fabulous. And uh, it's yeah, it's full of um, uh, interesting and thought provoking, and and uh, I'm sure to many people somewhat uh, confounding, even to a small minority, exasperating contents. For example, there is written in here, and I, I suspect this was not a typo. Uh, but uh, the two of you are calling for $12,000 per ounce, not per ton, per ounce gold. Yeah. And you are anticipating a period of global cooling, which I think ought to be uh, welcomed by Eric Whitehead to my left, because Eric walks around in Bermuda shorts in February when he is touring, you know, North Korea and whatever. But, but um, anyway, so apropos of the 
point of view you take in the world. You are not afraid to think for yourselves and follow the facts as you see those facts, wherever they might lead, however controversial the conclusions might be. Let us get down to cases with respect to energy. Now, this really, really interesting analysis uh, takes off from two quotations. One is from oilprice.com, and it reads as follows. The last three years have been the worst stretch of time in 770 years for new conventional oil discoveries, close quote. That, as I say, from oilprice.com. Here's another quote. On my first day as president, I will sign an executive order that puts a total moratorium on all new fossil fuel leases for drilling offshore and on public lands, and I will keep ban fracking everywhere, period, close quote. That's Mike Bloomberg. No, no, <laughs> no, it's not. That's Elizabeth Warren. So, uh, Adam, tell us what is happening with fracking. Well, you know, first off, I think it's important to realize that in these big commodity cycles, perception can get so bearish and psychology can get so bearish at the very bottom that I think a lot of investors and, and market watchers look at the price action and they try to backfill a story to make sense of that. And what they miss is they miss the changes in the actual fundamentals that are taking place. And you know that's something that we've tried to look at you know time and time again. And certainly that's the case today in, in the global oil market. So I think the biggest surprise with the fracking and the U.S. E&P companies this year is that growth is basically ground to a near standstill. Uh, last year saw very, very strong production growth coming from the shale basins. And this year, that growth is down at this point about 65 percent yeah. uh, on a year on year basis. You know, I, I, let, let me interrupt you, if I may, um, with uh, apologies for one moment to cast this decline in its global significance. It's not just that fracking is an important portion of what America produces in its own energy, but what here, I'm going to read from the, your letter, quote, what happens in the dozen counties that make up the Permian will make or break the global oil market over the next 10 years. So that's this. this so we used to kind of used to thinking of Saudi Arabia as the big swing producer. Is it fair to say, Lee Gehring, that that uh, one segment of West Texas has now superseded Saudi Arabia as the swing producer of the world? No, that's, that's definitely true. And it's something that, that very few people recognize uh and you know as we wrote in our last letter and that's the, i think it's so important we've written it twice about it in the last year is that if you go back to 2010 and you go all the way to the end of 2018 non-OPEC oil supply, and that includes everything. That includes OPEC NGLs, which are outside of the OPEC quota system. NGLs, sorry, means? Natural gas liquids. Yeah. It comes from the natural gas production. Uh, biofuels production, Canadian oil sands, which is a, a non-conventional oil um, product, that, that the shales represent basically three quarters of all that non-OPEC oil yeah. production. So and the, 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 the fact that the rest of the world has basically stopped growing and that this is the only source of growth in as far as oil over the last 10 years is, is something that people haven't recognized. And then what's even more interesting is that you know there's basically five major shale oil basins in the United States, of which three are really big. That is the Bakken, the Eagleford Shale, and the Permian. And we believe that both the Bakken and Eagleford Shale are, at this point, I think the term to use is they're exhausted. And in five years from today, we have great confidence that production in both those basins will be down significantly. Yeah. And therefore, the only the only source of growth within the U.S. shale oil business is the Permian. So here's, uh, Adam, let me get back to uh, what you were saying before you were so rudely interrupted. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to read you this quotation. Perhaps you can elaborate on it as you were doing before I butted in. Quote, in other words, the shale industry now needs 60% more wells, each of which is 11% more productive to reach the same 
level of growth as it did in the first, what, eight or 10 months of 2017. That's exactly right. And and I don't think anyone has really fully appreciated that fact. And the issue is that the base declines in these shale plays have gotten substantially higher. And there's really two reasons for that. The first is just we're producing more from the shale basins. And so if you put a constant percent decline on a bigger volume of oil, that's more barrels you have to make up for every year. But the second thing is that the decline rate has actually started to tick up a little bit. And those two things together means that we uh, have to produce effectively more barrels just to hold the whole thing at flat production. And the net effect of it is that this year, uh, just as just as you quoted, we're basically growing at the same rate as we did in 2017, but we have a rig count that's substantially higher. And again, what's amazing is that that's caught a lot of people off guard. No one was calling for that this year. Uh, very, very few people. And uh, that's just the new reality here. Well, markets are meant to be efficient, but this seems like a, a classic study in uh inefficiency, error, uh, opportunity, all the above? It, it, you know, it's interesting, Jim, I was thinking of, a, of an analogy to try to compare today's market to, to a market that was completely uh, consensus feeling was wrong a while ago. And you can turn the clocks back to the copper market back in 2005 and 2006. And it, in that market, a trend had emerged that no one recognized. And I'll talk what that trend was in a minute, but the, the, the speculative community, primarily hedge funds back in 2005, had become wildly bearish on copper. Why? Their analysis was as simple as copper, every time it's got to $1.50 in the past, copper supply would grow primarily from recycle or from recycling and copper demand would, would uh, shrink because of substitution. And they thought this was gonna happen again and they became wildly short copper. And I remember talking to a bunch of hedge fund people back then and I would try to explain, I'm not so sure that's smart. And they basically came up with these arguments. Oh, you have no understanding. There's, there's millions of tons of cathodes stored in warehouses in Chile and all over the world. And, and this is all going to come back into the market. But the, the, what, what people didn't recognize is that for the first time, starting around 2003, 2004, and 2005, the copper industry began to suffer a severe depletion problem of which no one understood it. No one tried to, to measure it. Or quantify it. However, it began. It began, and what happened was, is it became so severe that it basically created a structural gap in the difference between copper demand and copper supply. And what happened? Copper by the end of 2005 was a dollar 75 cents, and literally in a two-week period, it jumped from a dollar 75 almost up to four dollars and 25 cents. And it, the, the recognition of that structural copper gap in the copper market literally was closed in two weeks. I think the oil market. It's. It's. It's inefficiently priced today. The shales are slowing. Non-OPEC oil supply outside of the U.S. is slowing, and that's a whole other subject. But the thing is, is that uh, you have a global oil market that is is basically stopped growing, and we are the perception is that it will grow infinitely strong every year. So part of the narrative today is that because the time to actually put a shale well on online is so short, it takes maybe three to four months before you invest capital, before you get a, a pumping crew out there and you can start producing oil, that if oil shoots up to say 80 to $100, you'll just get so many wells flood like the Permian, the Bakken, all these uh, plays that production will just shoot up. And therefore, oil is always going to be a range bound commodity that is going to be relatively cheap. Um, I mean, just for a comparison, if we wanted to get like a, an offshore well producing, it might take five to seven years from discovering the, the reserves outside there before you start producing versus three months for the, for maybe a Permian well. Why is that narrative wrong today? And what do you think the market's making a mistake about? Well, I don't think that that narrative is wrong in the sense that shale oil is definitely really short cycle. It's much shorter than, than a lot of these larger CapEx and la longer lead time projects, like whether it be oil sands or deep water. But one of the things that we like to look at, which I think is pretty fascinating, is just to look at the geology 
of these different plays. And so, yes, you know, if you starved an area for capital, certainly production would fall off. And if you gave ample capital back, you would think you would see a short term boost. But if you look historically, and whether these are the original shale gas fields or the Eagleford and Bakken, they also are subject to a lot of physical constraints and a lot of uh, geological constraints. And I think that's what is now starting to take hold. So we like to look at how many, what we call these tier one wells, how many good drilling locations exist. And last year we estimate that if you ranked every well location in the whole play, um, in, in all three shale basins, most ENP companies were drilling 70% tier one wells. Now going forward, uh, the ratio is closer to 60% tier two, 40% tier one. So they just simply can't continue at the same pace. Now maybe they can another year, another two years, but that just, uh, all that does is pull forward the day of reckoning. So you could throw capital at this and have short-term impacts, but you can't get around the fact that you've largely produced good percentage of your best quality locations in two out of the three major shale bases. How about the possibility of finding another location, another Bakken? Well, that's interesting. You know, we haven't really had huge success outside of the three major shale basins to date. The the only other one I would point out might be the scoop and stack is a little bit earlier in its development, but you're starting to see some technical problems there. And one of the interesting things about shale, and again, there's an analogy to copper. Back in the 1990s, a new technology came out that allowed copper producers to go after what they call SXEW style deposits. Everyone knew where they were, but the technology wasn't available to go after them and develop them. Um, and then once they did, everyone, there's a huge rush and SXEW became 20% 20% of the global copper production. Um, it's sort of the same thing in the shales in the sense that we've always known these shales have been there. We've just never been able to get after them. So now you have. But you know what? If Zip Recruiter could be brought into this to find better <laughs> geologists, so how do you find qualified candidates? Usually it takes a long time. Uh, too many applicants, too many false positives. And a, this is where a zip recruiter makes it easy. Uh, ZipRecruiter.com slash grant will deliver you to the site that will tell you about how you can hire better. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. And here it is, ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Yeah, Adam, uh, two follow-up questions. One, these aren't just your guesses about which parts of the geology are best. So could you talk to our listeners about how you actually graded each uh, play? And second of all, we talked about your guys' excellent letter. Can you also tell listeners how they could download it if they want to read it? themselves? Sure. Well, the second question is easy. Our website is uh, GoRosen, G-O-R-O-Z-E-N.com, or just Google Gehring and Rosenswag. Um, and right on our website, we have all of our letters. We, we keep them all uh, in an archive as well, so you can go back and see what we've gotten right and gotten wrong. Uh, and they're all there for, for people to download uh, free of charge. So I definitely invite anyone with any interest to go and do that. So Gehring is G-O-E-H-R-I-N-G, ampersand, and R-O something, right? Yeah, that's right. You have to spell it perfectly, otherwise it won't come up. Mr. Google will help you with this. All right. So. And in terms of how you actually graded each play, because I thought this was one of the interesting parts of your letter. Yeah. So, you know, one of the big questions that's always come up over, over time is how much of an impact has what people call drilling and completion technologies, that is how long you drill the well, how much propent and frac sizes you put down, how much that's impacted uh, well results versus where you've drilled the wells in the different basins. And we call that high grading or tier one and tier two. So, you know, certain parts of the wells will just be thicker. They'll have more organic content. Uh, they'll be just better geologies to drill at. And regardless of how you drill them, that would be the better spot versus changing 
how you drill these. And it's been very difficult, if not impossible, to try and really assess how much of an impact each, each factor was having. And what we did is we built, through machine learning uh, and a neural network, we built a artificial intelligence engine that tries to, using the inputs of where you drill a well and how you drill a well, predict the quality of that well, how, how it will produce. And it's actually been very, very predictive. And one of the things that it showed us was that the huge uptick in productivity over the last two or three years, which everybody thought, including ourselves, we thought this too, was coming from tweaks on how you drill the wells. In fact, what was happening is that people and energy companies were focusing in on the best parts of their play and they were high grading massively and so only drilling where, the best wells. where, where they drill. drill. Location, location, location. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, if you go back just, just five or six years ago in all these uh, shell plays about uh, only about 35 to 40 percent of the wells being drilled were in tier one locations and today we're almost up to 70 percent and that that has a huge impact going forward as far as drilling productivity and things like that but I also would want to answer another question that you asked before about well prices go high, everyone ramps up drilling activity, and the shales basically make the world go into oversupply again. We, we sort of forget that the shale plays are are just, they're, they're, they're like oil fields in general. They have a lot of the characteristics of a conventional oil field, you know, and we've been drilling out of conventional oil fields going all the way back to 1858 with Colonel Drake in, in uh, Oil City, Pennsylvania. And what happens in any conventional uh, oil field is that you drill it up, production ramps up, it peaks, and then it declines. And the thing, it declines because because you basically produced a so, so much of the reserves that production can't be sustained. And it turns out that those geological principles that, that drive that phenomenon in conventional oil fields, we believe are, are all present in the gas shales and the oil shales. And a, a, a great example, like you know, most people think that the amount of oil that can come out of these plays, whether it be gas or oil, is unlimited. And that would enable high prices for production to, to surge again. However, that's not true. And here's two good examples of it. The first two oil, a gas shale fields discovered, it's probably not the right word, but discovered and developed were the Barnett Shale uh, in uh, East Texas and the Fayetteville Shale in Arkansas. And I should point out that both those fields peaked in their production about five years ago and production today is half of what their peaks were. So they have already suffered exhaustion. And I don't care if the gas price goes back to goes back to eight dollars in MCF. That chances are we will probably, if we ever saw minor growth out of those fields ever again, and be very very lucky. Okay, um, Adam and Lee, I'm going to quote from your letter again. Quote: In the 30 years we have been investing in the global natural resource markets, we cannot remember seeing greater value than we do today in the global oil markets. Close quote. So, how does the listener to the grants uh, current yield of you know how do we implement this fabulous opportunity? Well, I think that's exactly right. We've we've never seen things the way they are today, and, and we can give you almost countless examples. Lee was saying before the number of companies with you know two and three handles on their stocks. Um, if you look, when I think this is an interesting metric, the number of companies in the industry today that are actually trading below what what they call their PDP value, and that is proved, developed, producing well. They've already been drilled. They're already online. You just have to pump the oil out of the ground, and that is the most conservative version of value. We've never hardly, with a few examples of specific situations in distress, companies never trade at that value or below. The art is always in valuing how much of a premium to PDP you, you would like to pay. And today companies, many companies are trading below their PDP values, which is incredible. Well, I think um, that if we were going to send, the, you know, spread the word on this, what we would do first is, uh, is contact Pitney Bowes, right? For a mailing operation. Makes sense to me. 
And I, this leads me to uh, send pro online for Pit and Post. Uh, with send pro online, it's just a click, send, and save for as low as $4.99. That's $4.99, ladies and gentlemen, a month. Send envelopes, flats, packages, um, uh, right from your desk, and you are back in business in no time. So apart from being a current yield listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started and a free 10-pound scale. Yeah, it's a scale. It's a fairly heavy piece of machinery to ensure that you never overpay. Save time and money on mailing and shipping with SendPro online. Start starting at $4.99 a month, not five, $4.99. You can also qualify for special USPS rates for letters and priority mail shipping, calculate exact postage online, print from your PC. So go to pb.com slash grants pod to access the special offer. Three free 30-day plus trial. Now it's a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash grants pod experience shipping made simple. All right. Well, let's, let, so, so much, and now that we've mastered the field of energy, um, yeah. let us delve uh, briefly into some of the very interesting notions that you are uh, discussing in this letter. One has to do with the weather, or does it have to do with the climate? It, I, I think climate and weather, I think that they're interchangeable. Like climate, climate's like 10 days, right? And then weather is yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, today. <laughs> but, 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 so, so, but more specifically, so the two of you um, are of the conviction that uh, sunspot activity is a, a determinant, in fact, might be dispositive, no, for, uh, for our, call it long-range weather or short-range climate. But you are of the view that uh, that sunspot activity is going to dictate um, a major reversal in everyone's expectations. So the, 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 if you listen to, uh, as you must indeed, you have no choice, if you listen to the conventional line on our climate problems or uh, global climate change, what you see is, is, a, is a more or less straight line extrapolation of today's warming past what, 50, 70 years or so into the indefinite future. So uh, mass extinction looms uh, about the time of my 150th birthday, I think. Yeah. Um, what is wrong with that? And how should we more correctly approach things? Okay. Now I, I should step back here for a, a minute and say what, what I'm going to talk about. It, it's very controversial and there's not a lot of agreement on the principles that I'm going to put forth on how much they affect, if they affect the weather at all, or uh, how much they affect the weather. But what Jim's referring to is that uh, the the sun goes through a, a, a cycle every 11 years where it, it goes through a, a period where the sun produces zero sunspots or very, very few sunspots to about a period six to seven years later where it produces a very large amount of sunspots. And then that sunspot activity begins to decline again and eventually it goes back to zero. And one of the, the interesting things about sunspots is that for reasons that astrophysicists and solar physicists don't quite understand is that you go through these very long cycles where the amount of sunspot activity every 11 years is, is very strong and increases. And there are periods where sunspot activity will go through long periods where it decreases, including periods where sunspot activity actually disappears altogether for significant periods of time. Now, what's interesting is about going back and looking at those periods where sunspot activity was very, very low or non-existent is that those coincided roughly with periods of extremely cold weather. Primarily the, the whole little ice age, which started literally at the very beginning of the 13th century and didn't end until literally the 1880s and 1890s uh, in, in, our, in our recorded history. And there were periods in that little ice age that were warmer and colder, and again, correlated with the, the, the emergence and then disappearance of sunspots. Since 
the early part of this century, we have gone through an unprecedented period of increase in sunspot activities, and especially in the post-World War II period. And that period among astrophysicists and solar scientists is known as the modern maximum. And you could make the case that, and we don't know, it, that is that has that increase in sunspot activity, has that increased the global temperature or had an influence on global temperatures over the last hundred years? Or is it man-made CO2 or is it some combination of both? However, we know it's gotten warmer. And one of the funny things about that warming trend, and I think this is what people don't understand, is that that warming trend has been also associated with a boom in global agriculture, and especially in the post-World War II environment. Now, if in one of our letters, we overlap uh, corn yields, uh, measured corn yields from 19, from the late 1930s all the way today and the average global temperature. And you see it's an amazing correlation. Well, okay, corn yields, it's obviously been hugely affected by crop genetics, you know, first the hybridization and then the, the GMO movement and increased fertilizer application and things like that. But you could also make the case that yields have been helped significantly by warmer weather. And just think of it this, this way. One of the big benefits of warming cycles is that you have uh, much fewer spring, late spring fall frosts and much fewer early fall frosts. And what you've done is you've you've lengthened the growing season in North America. And it's it's significant. I you know, I can remember as a kid in nineteen seventy-nine taking a train across Canada. And when you would go through the classic wheat belt in Canada now, today you do the same thing. And what's growing up there? It's all corn and soybeans. And why is that? Well, I mean plus, obviously, the, plus the vineyards. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing is, is that that because of a lengthened growing cycle, you have been able to grow crops there that literally couldn't grow forty years ago. Now what what would happen if all of a sudden we went from a period where uh, where we it got warmer and warmer to a period where we got cooler and cooler. And one of the things is if you study cooling cycles is that cooling cycles are 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 very, very highly associated with disrupted weather. And the, the thing is, is that I find it so fascinating and there's no way to prove this is that the last three cycles in sunspots, each one has the, 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 there's been a significant decrease in the maximum amount of sunspots at the high point of the cycle. And a lot of astrophysicists and, 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 and um, scientists now believe that we, we are entering into a long-term reduction in sunspot cycle activity. If this is case, it will mean uh, potentially of, of entering a period of global cooling and that global cooling will wind up with much more disruptive global weather events. And it's fascinating that that this year alone in the, the 2019 North American growing season, we had two massively disruptive event, events, one of them a, a clear record breaker, that all the flooding that took place in the upper Midwest in the last, last spring, which wound up producing the, the latest planting season in U.S. history. And we We've had that that near record blizzard back in the first week of October with a very very uh, large area of frost that was associated with it. So have the sunspots cycles already and the and the the associated cooling period already begun to affect the, the weather? We don't know, but I suspect that we're going to see a lot more disruptive events going forward in the next several, several years. Well, here's the disruption. You know, uh, Evan, I don't mean to talk our book, Evan and Eric, but uh, disruption is good for journalism. No? More stuff to write about. Yeah, absolutely. So Adam Rosenzweig and Lee Gehring, thank you for being with us. It has been a, a provocation and an education. Thank, thank, thank you, Jim. And thank a, you so much. And also a lot of fun. So thank you. And Eric, good work. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, well, thank you for listening to Current Yield. Uh, uh, did I mention Grant's Interest Rate Observer? Uh, maybe once. Uh, Couldn't hurt to do it. You yeah. guys subscribe to Grant's, don't you? I mean, uh, just you sure do. Yeah, sure do. Oh. <laughs> I've been a, lo a long-term Grant's well, subscriber. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Adam. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, listeners to Current Yield. Thank you. Mm -hmm.